0: I feel like I need to start out with a couple of apologies this morning. First of all, uh, Todd said what I'm gonna say. So um, if if I lose you, remember what he said. And uh, the second apology goes to Margaret High because we've had this conversation several times hanging over the fence in our garden. So sorry, Margaret, if you have to listen to it again. Let's start this part of our worship service by looking around. Take your eyes off of me up here in front, off of your phone if you're sneaking a glance at your latest text or this morning's headlines, off of your parents or your children if you're shushing each other. Look at the lights in the ceiling. Look at the new speakers. Can you find three of them? Where's the purple? Look at the windows. Now, give a nod to the people around you. We're not so big on shaking hands these days, but we can bump fists and nod at each other and say, hey, how's your morning going? All of these things together and all of these people make up what we call East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. And none of it just happens. All of it needs to be lovingly taken care of. Last Sunday, Aubrey, Aubrey and then Todd introduced this series of worship services on stewardship. And today, as you know, we want to talk about taking care of this institution that is our congregation. Before I comment on our church in particular, I want to think about our relationships to our relationships to our organizations in general using a little bit of sociology, which the Bible is full of, by the way. And here's a parenthetical Pet Peeve thought, the Bible was written in the time of tribes and groups, which means it should be approached looking through a lens of sociology, which is the study of collective groups. And a critique, in my opinion, we too often look at the Bible through a lens of psychology, which is a study of individuals, more or less. I hope I didn't offend any psychologists there. Okay, enough of the parentheses. First, let me point out our human penchant for what I'm gonna call institutionalizing our relationships. For example, Marlisa and I are part of a bunch of different friend groups. What's one of the first things we do as these groups form together? We name them. So Marlisa and I belong to JC, Vivimos, Kimpi, and a bunch of others. It's easier that way. We don't have to name all the people involved. But there's something else going on. Groups take on a life of their own. Naming them like this recognizes that in some way. The groups become more than just a collection of individuals, like the group of people that shop at Central Market every Tuesday. They become more than the sum of their parts. They are an entity in their own right, which together we all created. The account of the of creation in Genesis says that we humans are created in the image of God, of God the Creator. So it's natural that we too create things. All the things that we were looking at a bit ago—this building, this sound system that allows you to hear my voice, flawed as it though, flawed though it may be, this group of people—all of it makes up East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. Together, we create this organization, and together we care for it, because it then cares for us and gives us meaning that we would not have on our own. We have a whole litany of things here at East Chestnut Street that we do. Over the last few weeks, I've been impressed. I've been impressed again at the way some of you have expressed your gratitude for the way you felt cared for by our congregation. I understand. I have my own story of going through a particularly low point about 10 years ago when I was losing my job, and in the middle of that process, my father suddenly died, and I experienced what it means when a whole congregation reaches out and cares for you. It's amazing. Monday evening meals, creation care committee, chestnut housing, influential youth group trips, mind-changing second-hour discussions, anti-racism work, an awesome listserv that puts legs into the idea of community. You know, I just realized recently that we're kind of unique with this listserv. Most churches don't have one. I mean, where do they go if they need a graduation gown? (laughs) If we were just a bunch of unconnected individuals, none of these things would happen. But we've pulled together and created an organization, and the result is pretty satisfying. The problem is that we have complicated relationships with the institutions that we make. Because our culture, our way of life teaches us that it's individuals, not collective groups, that are the most basic and the most important element of our society. Our country's experience with the pandemic is just the most recent example of this. Anything that inhibits my free individuality invites my rebellion. We might be aware that institutions are often good for us, but they also make us feel obligated to act in a certain way, and we don't like that. When you read the Bible, and if you've paid attention to a host of philosophers and thinkers over the last centuries you will find that exaggerated individualism is at the root of a lot of things that are wrong with our world. Love your neighbor, Jesus said. Paul writing to the Galatians says something like, don't use your freedom for your own pleasures. Use it to serve one another. It's the collective that they are emphasizing here, not the individual. Unfortunately, it's not just our, our relationships with our institutions that are complicated. The institutions themselves are complicated. Because I believe that as soon as a collective, as soon as an institution, as soon as an organization is set up, it strives for more power and control than is healthy. It becomes one of the powers that Paul and Walter Wink write about, and it needs to constantly be reined back. It's constant work to find the right balance between the rights and the authority of the institution and the rights and the autonomy of the individual. That relationship between individuals and an institution is what the story in First Samuel is about, I think. So imagine that you're living out there in a tent or something. Your relatives, you got your family, your relatives, that's your tribe— and your cattle are all close by. You know you're connected sort of loosely to the next tribe over, but they're not necessarily committed to helping you if you need it. And you know there are lots of bad people out there that are, who could come along and try to take things away from you. You've seen it happen with your neighbors. So you're feeling kind of insecure. And you say, you go to your leader, your prophet, and you say, hey, we want a government that pulls us together. We want a king. It'll be better that way. It'll be more secure. And so the prophet goes to God, and God responds by saying, well, do you know what you're getting into here? Do you know what a formal government will do to you? It'll tax you. It'll form an army and draft your sons to be soldiers. You'll have to hand over your har- some of your harvests. Some of you will have to go work in that government. Is this what you really want? And you think about it, and you say, yes. With a government, we can be more than just a bunch of tribes here. We can be a nation. Think what it'll mean to be part of a nation. And so God says, okay, you know what you're getting into. Go for it. And both of those things turn out to be true. There is more security for the people. More than just a bunch of tribes hanging out next to each. There is more security for the people. And there's more than just tribes hanging out next to each other in the land of Israel. They create Israel. And there are taxes and armies and forced labor. The people in the tribes are no longer as free as they once were. Now, Here at East Chestnut Street, we don't have anything quite that drastic. We're trying to be a church, not a nation. But we do have a whole set of responsibilities and some unspoken expectations that we could explore. For example, we call it tithes and offerings, not taxes. I mean, there isn't some king forcing us to pay. But how else is our church going to survive if we don't give some offerings? And there are other things, too, if this creation of ours, this organization we call our church, is to thrive. One of our work groups counted something like 120 positions that we need volunteers to fill. Now, a lot of times that number is seen as a negative, as in, that's just way too much. But I'd like to put a positive spin on it. There are 120 opportunities that we all can contribute to our church to making sure that this institution of ours really is a living sign of God's kingdom in so much bigger a way than we could do it if we were just individuals taking care of ourselves. With this institution, with this church, we can live the way God wants us to live in ways that we cannot do if we're all out there on our own. Jesus did know what he was talking about when he said that where a couple of you are gathered, there's something bigger happening than just two or three people. This week, this past week in a worship commission meeting, Elisa Palmer reflected on what her dreams for our church are. There are so many good things here, she said. Her hope for the congregation and I would expand that to say, our hope for the congregation is that we live out Mary's excited yes to God. Part of the richness of our congregation, she said, is the rich network of human beings that are here. And so many people don't have that. There are so many benefits here. Last week, Todd challenged us to be grateful. He said it's gratitude that inspires sharing. And I'm going to add that when we are truly grateful for something, we take better care of it. So my challenge to all of us is let's dive in. Let's take care of this church of ours. Fill one of those positions. And let's be grateful to be part of an amazing church community it's not perfect, we all know that, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and sometimes it needs to be reined back, but in spite of, the sh- but in spite of its shortcomings, it's a visible demonstration that God is at work in our world.